Photo Mission Exposure, a podcast for photographers. Well, welcome to this episode, episode six of Photo Mission Exposure. And today in the studio with me, I have Jen Dana. Jen is a commercial photographer and also a forensic scientist. Jen has previously worked in the areas of fire investigation and accident investigation. Currently, a lot of her work involves the av- working in the aviation industry. So let's talk to Jen and find a bit more about her story and her photography. I'd like to take you back to when you first picked up the camera. What age did you pick a camera and show an interest in photography? I probably, I mean, I did photography at school, you know, so I'm <laughs> 40. Um, yeah, so I think I'd, I think I started when I was about, you know, 15 or 16 as, you know, and, and in those days it was obviously darkroom stuff. So, yeah. yeah, some black and white photos and, uh, you know, I think that one of the things that made me understand the power of photography was that I'd taken some photos of a friend of mine who um, ended up passing away when he was quite young and so his family asked for images and the image that I had was the image that they used on his um, coffin at at the funeral and I really understood in that moment how important and how powerful photography is for people and I can say like probably five or six times now throughout my life I've the photo that people use at a funeral is often the photo that I've taken of someone so it's a constant beautiful reminder of how important photography is just in people's lives in that way and I think that is real important we've just recently um, lost a family member last year and and fortunately I had taken some a whole series of photos Um, and um, that person was never really liked getting in front of the camera but I kind of over a period of time, took a lot of photos, and they—they're they're the photos that we've used, we keep around the house and that type of stuff. And I think that is that to me is always important to be able to have those things. So. Absolutely, and I remember too one time when, um, m- you know, my partner's uh, uh, grandfather was dying, and he. I was, you know, I was there during that during that process, and I I missed my camera. Like I didn't have my camera there for the whole three days that we, that we were sort of there. And I was like, oh, it's it really made me understand like that being able to use a camera helps me to sort of sort out the world around me and how to, how it all makes sense and how it all fits together. So that was also another really important moment for me in understanding that that actually what I do does is is important in people's lives. You know, so yeah. Yep, and look, a lot of the photographers that are listening to this will get that connection because. The camera actually becomes a part of you and, and, and it's a great tool to express how you're feeling and a lot of people too also um, why they continue to take photographs, it's the feeling of when you capture that image. Um, it's a feeling it's hard to explain to people. It is and I always know when I've got it, like I look at it and I go that's it, I know yep. it and I know when I don't have it and I, I like it's, sometimes it's so frustrating because you can't get it for whatever reason but I always know when I've got it and I'm always like got it, let's move on. You yep. Know? Yep. Yeah. I do a lot of street photography and street photography is very about like that, that sometimes I'll catch a, a magic moment and the minute I look at the back of the camera. Yeah, you just know. <laughs> you, just, you just know you've nailed that. And map. you also go, I'm not going to get any better than that. I'm going home today. <laughs> that's, that's it. And, and like I said, it's, um, I've talked about in a few things, you know, photographers happy dance when you do get that shot. And like I said, people who are not photographers don't understand it um, and they kind of struggle with that. But so what age, so you did some photography at school. Mm-hmm. So when did you get kind of started to decide that this, 
photography might be a career path. When did you kind of... Yeah, so I sort of went down the degree pathway. I got my degree in forensic science and was working as a fire investigator and worked for the Rural Fire Service in Did New that South involve Wales. photography at that point? Yeah, it does a little bit. Um, forensic science is pretty heavy. Sort of, You do quite a bit of photography in forensic science. And so you get, you get relatively good technical chops when you do that stuff. Not very creative, though, because the job as a forensic photographer is to replicate exactly what you see in front of you. Yep. Excuse me. So um, you do get really good sort of um, understanding of what the technical capabilities of the camera are, but how to creatively reflect a scene is not something that you get a lot of. Um, So I sort of went down that path. And then in 2008, I got really sick and couldn't work. I had to give up my job. Um, and that was I was largely desk based at that point, and I was like, I just need to do something where I'm moving my body, like I need to be up and moving. Um, and so yeah, I just t- took a chance and decided that you know I loved, I loved forensic science and I loved the kind of analytical nature of it, but I loved the photography more. And I just thought, well, that's something I can do. I know I'm good at it. I can probably make a living from it, um, and and I don't have to see dead bodies anymore. So that's win win. <laughs> yep, yep. Because having that, you know, scientific background, obviously the technical side of photography is something you'd probably really appreciate. Obviously, and the modern advances in the cameras that we got now, I mean, in the last 10 years, it's been um, quite nice that there's so much technology coming out in the cameras. Yeah. Is that something that you've been able to leave or offer because you've understood the technology, you think? or? Um, I th- I, the reason that I love photography is because it feels like it's equal left brain, right brain. So it feels like it's an equal amount of creativity versus technical knowledge. Yep. And you and when when you're doing it really well, both of those things are in perfect harmony with each other. So you, you use the technical to, to create the creative vision that you've got. And if you don't have the technical then you can't achieve your vision. And if you don't have the creative, then your images are boring. So you've got to have both in equal measure. And I think that's that's such a good fit for my personality is I've got, you know, my brain is always active in terms of trying to analyse and figure things out. But I also have this creative drive that I want to sort of inject into each image. So it's I, I, that's the reason I love photography. And that's, that's really interesting because a lot of people will talk about the the creative part of photography and, and the technical part of photography. And, and people always say, oh, my strong point's creative or not strong but tactical and 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 that's what they do so it's interesting that you've actually um the way you brought those two things together how you've actually got them working in harmony it's and taken think- me a while but <laughs> <laughs> it didn't happen immediately but it's taken a lot i mean i've been i've been in business for about a decade now and it's taken me a really long time to get there but i feel like i'm getting there now yeah yeah so what what type of challenges are in the in the business side of stuff that you've done with your in your field have there been challenges for you? or is it- Yeah, if I had have known how hard it was going to be to start a business, I never would have done it, honestly. Um, and I'm glad I didn't know because I can't imagine doing anything else now and I'm so fortunate with the clients that I get to work with now. But, man, if I had known how hard it was going to be, God, I can... I, I remember distinctly a period at the end of 2010 going into 2011 and the GFC was still washing on to businesses at that yep. point so people weren't spending a lot of money so i started my business right at the end of the gfc and you know i which is maybe fortunate because i that's probably the hardest it'll ever get for me um but uh yeah the, the challenges have been in the beginning the challenges were finding consistency of work and now the challenge is the opposite of being able to find enough time in the day to to do that you know um and i think being a photographer, you know, not many photographers are comfortable being in front of the camera, which means they're not necessarily that comfortable selling themselves. Yes. But when you're a photographer, you are essentially selling yourself. You're selling yourself as the product. So that can be really tricky, I think, for people, and particularly for women, that can be really tricky. 
I think so, and that's a lot of people take a long time sometimes to learn the business of photography um, because at the end of the day, you have to make it pay the bills. And yeah, and I get really frustrated that, you know, um, students coming out of any of the colleges and stuff, they have no business training whatsoever and, and they don't know what a bad statement is and they don't know how to meet a brief with a client, you know, and they do apparently do all those subjects, but they don't know, you know. So when I hire an assistant and I say send me an invoice and it doesn't have... Uh, you know, an, an invoice number on it or, you know, if they're registered for GST, it doesn't have an ABN or whatever, you know, and you're just like, well, how do you not know this stuff, you know? It's, well, they're, I find they're, it basic, really, they're basic things that you have to have. And I find it really, like, I, I, I feel really sorry for them because they don't know what they don't know, but you're like, God, if you, if you submitted this invoice to a client, they would think you don't know what the hell you're doing. There's no way a client would, would hire you if they saw this as your this sort of professional back-end system, you know? So, yeah. yeah. It, well, it does say something about all aspects of your, um, the things that you do and how you present yourself in front of a client will, will make the client decide whether they're going to use you or not. Absolutely. And even little things, like I said, I've seen, I've seen examples of really badly done invoices mm. um, and like I said, so you start questioning that person straight away. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of does put a and flag in, up. In my industry too, like the one of the things where people judge you on immediately is how you turn up to site. So when I turn up to an industrial site, I've got hearing protection, I've got eye protection. You know, I wear glasses, so I've got prescription. Um, you know, protective eyewear. Yep. I'm wearing steel cap boots. I'm wearing you know uh, day night rated um, high vis clothing like top and pants. I've got gloves on on the side of me. I'm already ready to work on their site regardless of what their PPE requirements are. Yes, yep. And that's a really big deal. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons why people keep hiring me is because they know I'm not going to do anything stupid on site. Like, I, but you know, being an accident investigator, I understand that the small little pieces all add up to create an accident. So I'm just going to, you know, check off every single thing along the way to make sure that I'm as safe as I possibly can be. And people can tell when you know what you're talking about, you know, yep. when I rock up onto a site and I go, cool, I'm here, I'm ready to work. Yep. All of my equipment is tested and tagged. All of my PPE is right That's up to the Australian standards. You know, I've got all of the information that you need. I've got all of the clearances that I need. So, yep. yeah. And obviously you have work method statements and all that type absolutely. of stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and look, the world, it's good, and it's good that the world's kind of going that way, that people are being um, kind of, asked to work in a more safer way because mm. at the end of the day you you want everyone to go home at the end of the day and you don't want accidents so take through some of the jobs that you do some of those high risk jobs what mm. type of things would you be hanging outside of a plane what would you be doing the, the highest risk thing that i do would be shooting air to air so shooting from one helicopter to either another helicopter or a plane and the, the highest of that high risk is in the military environment so you've got um, uh, one of my clients manufactures the um, MRH Taipan, which is the sort of um, medium lift army helicopter. Um, Airbus Helicopters manufactures that, and they it's a nine ton helicopter which has two pilots, two aircrew, and can seat 20 people in the back. So it's a massive helicopter. Um, so that's probably the most uh, potentially dangerous situation that I'm in working in and around those huge helicopters because it's noisy, it's windy, you can't, you know, everything has to be locked down. You have to have constant communication with the air crew, you know, you can, and, and just stupid things like, you know, you can't walk around the back of the helicopter because there's a tail rotor there yep. and all that kind of stuff, you know. So, um, and, and you're generally strapped into the helicopter when you're flying, but you're also carrying, you know, I'm usually have a gyroscope with a camera on top of that, you know, a, filming something out the door so you're kind of hanging out the door at the same time so 
it, it for me it doesn't get much more dangerous than that but in fact it's probably one of the safest situations to be in because the army air crew are just the most professional people you'll ever work with so yeah and that's interesting because the equipment you, you mentioned gyro so a lot of people mightn't understand what the gyro is and obviously when you're operating in a high movement potentially low shutter speed environment you do need some way to stabilize it um yeah and so the gyroscope i use a lot more for video than i do for stills yep. um there is a sweet spot for stills um around 125th 200 somewhere around there of a second where you can if the light is good like if you're in the sort of in good daylight you can get a stable image but still get movement in the blades yep. which is really crucial because if you're shooting another helicopter you want to see that it's moving through the air, not that it's just, just static in the air like a model. So, yep. you you know, that's kind of crucial. If you're at sunrise or sunset, it's a bit different. You definitely need the gyroscope. But for me, most of the time I use the gyroscope is when I've got the red attached to it, shooting, you know, filming very high shutter speed stuff, yep. you know, very high frame rate stuff rather. So outside of the, the aviation type stuff, what other type of environments have you got into? Um, yeah, so like I said, mostly industrial stuff. So lots of manufacturing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, and I do quite a quite a bit of um, sort of just professional portraits of people when I'm you know I'm in air conditioning for the whole day and it's wonderful you know. Yeah. So um, a couple of big accounting firms are my clients and I do probably you know forty portraits every six weeks sort of yep. stuff. Yeah. So. I mean, does, that, a, does that keep you balanced? Like, because you've got this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love the variety of it. I do love taking portraits. I love that kind of quick interaction where you, someone walks in and you've literally got, you know, five seconds to make them feel comfortable. And so, you know, over 10 years, I've honed the, my ability to do that. Uh, but it is, it's really interesting and exciting because you have to, like, I've, I do it 40 times in a day, but for that person, they've been thinking about it for a week and it's their five-minute slot and it's their one chance to get their portrait right. So it's, it is easy for photographers to lose sight of the fact that there is a nervous person at the other end of your camera, particularly if you're churning through images, you know, lots of portraits in one day. Uh, so I kind of enjoy the challenge of trying to make that as personable and enjoyable as possible for that person. Or, or the feedback that I often get when I shoot my portraits is that was not as painful as I thought it was going to yep. be, which is probably the best compliment that you can receive because <laughs> nobody's going to say, that was the most amazing experience of my life. <laughs> I'm so glad I got my portrait taken. <laughs> no one's ever going to say that to you unless they're a narcissist. Um, but most people who are just general people who go to work every day don't want to have their photo taken. They don't want to go to work on a Monday morning at 9 o'clock and have their photo taken. Yeah, and it's interesting because... And, and as a photographer, that's some a really good lesson to learn that that the person at the other end of the, the lens isn't necessarily there comfortably, and is your job or voluntarily. Or voluntarily. In most cases, voluntarily in a corporate there. environment, because yep. they've just been told the board says we want all new yep. images for the for the all the uh, all the staff, and then obviously people will front up however they front up, and then you've got to try and make them feel comfortable and capture a shot where they actually look. Like they want to be there. <laughs> well, I think for me, the thing I'm always looking for is a natural smile. So people, you can tell when you're looking at an image whether someone is smiling in a forced way or whether it's a natural smile. And so the the trick as a portrait photographer, I think, is to develop a, a sort of a shooting personality, if you like, that allows people to connect with you instantly and make... And one of the things I always try to do is make people feel like I'm in control. Like I've got this, you don't have to worry about anything... I'm going to tell you exactly what I need you to do. We're going to do it. I'm going to show you the result on the iPad. You're going to be able to choose the image at the end that you want. I'm going to Photoshop that image and only that image. No one else is going to see any of the other images that we shoot, only the ones that you choose. And that makes a really big difference. Yeah, I think look, when you explain something to somebody, it obviously makes it, breaks it down. Mm. I mean, everyone, 
everyone, whatever task you're doing, um, if you explain what you're going to do, and you see it more and more now, I think that people are kind of getting accustomed to that where someone will walk you through the process. You'll go somewhere and basically you'll be given the run sheet how it's all going to happen. Um, so you've done the the, um, the fire stuff. You've talked about a little bit about the fire stuff. So what, what would be your job after a fire to go in and... Yeah, so the job of a fire investigator, which I don't do fire investigation anymore, I should say, but um, when I was working as a fire investigator, the, the job is to go in and investigate the... Uh, you know, basically the, the, the source of ignition, so where yep. the fire started, and that could be a structural fire or a bushfire. Um, so the job is to figure out where it started and, if possible, figure out how it started. Um, and sometimes that's quite simple and sometimes it's really difficult. Sometimes there are multiple points of ignition and so you start thinking, okay, is it arson or is it a fault or is it a lightning strike? You know, like you just don't know. Yep. Um, and it's your job to work out based on not only the evidence but also your experience on what the root cause of that, that you know, that fire is. Because we've seen recently, you know, there's been some really bad um, bushfires in Australia and around the world. Mm. Like it's, so it's kind of one of those areas that it's kind of an important job for people to understand. Especially, I mean, we we understand now lightning strikes are a huge starter of bushfires. Yep. Um, especially those you know those dry storms where there's yeah. That's so a power line sparking, you know, and, and and there's lots of controversy around you know certain power companies that don't want to acknowledge that their infrastructure was the you know was the cause of that fire or whatever you know there's been a, quite a few big fires in Australia's history where that's been determined as the root cause but you know that's it's never never released <laughs> no and I think it's one of those things that we've we live in a society too where a lot of the infrastructure is aging yes and particularly our power infrastructure yeah the power infrastructure's been there for a long long time and the technology hasn't really changed so like insulators and stuff like that mm. quite a lot of old technology that can fail um, and I think, yeah, look, it's it's the world we live in that there's never enough money to go around to spend it on the, on the things that we really need to do. So outside of your professional stuff that you're paid to shoot and virtually asked to shoot, what type of stuff would you shoot for yourself? Nothing at all. You don't shoot anything personally. For, 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 if I go on holidays, I'll shoot photos. I'll shoot photos of my my holidays, and if yep. I'm with my family, I'll always take a camera with me. So people, so people that I love or places that I love to visit. If, if I'm specifically on holidays, but when I'm not shooting, I love to get away from the camera. Okay. I just adore not having to carry equipment with me. Like when I travel, for example, I'm about to travel to the air show in Avalon at the end of this month or in the end of February. And I will take probably 250 kilos worth of excess baggage with me. Yep. I'll take cameras, video cameras, lights. Like I'll take a whole bunch of stuff. So flying with that amount of equipment, I often hit the maximum amount of checked baggage that you're allowed to with Virgin, which is nine bags. Yep. <laughs> so when I travel or when I'm on my own or when I'm, when I'm not at work, I love being able to get on a plane with a laptop bag and nothing else. I just adore not having to check baggage in or worry about weights or figure out if this bag weighs more than that bag or whatever. And so for me, my phone is, an, you know, the, my phone has an amazing camera in it. If there's something I want to remember, I take a photo of that. And if I, you know, I, I, I never think about, oh, I wish I had my camera to take this perfect sunset because I just enjoy it instead of wanting to capture it. I'm over that thing where you're like, I really need to record I need filters on the front of this. I need, yeah, I need yeah, this. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> over it. And, and also too because I've seen and done things that I just would never have done in my, in my life if I hadn't have done this job. Like there are things that I've, places that I've been to and things I've been exposed to that I couldn't even describe to you, you yeah. know. And 
that's better than just about anything that's in the normal world. Well, so, yeah. I want to just go back to you, you talked about the gear that you took, and there's a lot of discussion on a lot of photography forums because airlines are just really starting to clamp down on yeah. hand, hand luggage. That's true. And, yep. a, and a, lot of, a lot of photographers tried to cram as much of their gear in their hand luggage because they felt keep it close to them, um, keep it safe. But you obviously have to put a lot of your gear under. Quite a lot. So the only things I carry on with me are the things that I know that I'm either not going to be able to start work with at the other end. So I carry at least one camera and one lens and one like sort of replacement battery with me for stills just yep. so that if I get to the other end and everything else is lost, I can at least start working. Um, and if I travel with the red, then I always take the red and the gyroscope with me because they're both really sensitive pieces of equipment. So yep. I don't check the gyroscope in particularly because if that gets thrown around, it's it's worthless. Yeah. So what what has you been experiencing? So you put in into a hard case type scenario. Um, yeah, lenses, lighting, all that. So lighting is you know not necessarily a road case, but anything that's you know anything that's insured basically yep. goes in a hard case. Yeah. Yeah. Because some some insurances frown on insurance is stuff that goes under the aircraft um uh, have you ever had a problem with that i've or? never had a problem well, i've never had a problem flying I've, yeah. you know most of my insurance claims are because i've dropped something off the side of a boat or something stupid yeah. like that you know um most of my insurance claims have been because i've damaged a piece of equipment yeah um but you know you're a professional photographer you need your equipment if something happens when it's under the belly of the aircraft and it's insured you know, like I can't control that, you know, and I've got good insurance that covers me for worldwide for anything I'm doing anywhere I'm traveling. So, yeah. you know. There's been a lot of, um, I suppose, talk and stuff about lithium-ion batteries. Oh, yes, killing me. <laughs> so the red camera takes um, the, yeah, the, the, the huge lithium-ion batteries and you can only carry up to 160-watt-hour battery and... To do a shoot all day on the red and the gyroscope, I need at least eight eight by one hundred and sixty watt hour um, amp hour batteries, and so, but I can only fly with two. So that means when I get to the other end, I've either got to rent them or I've got to travel with someone else who can take some batteries for me, or I've just got to take my chances by putting them all in a crumpler and taking them through check in and seeing how I go. Yeah, yeah. You know. So and you and you know um, probably more so than most people what what the result, why the batteries are dangerous. Yeah, definitely. I definitely get it, you know, and I have and I think that I can understand why people, I, I can understand why the airlines are doing it, but it also doesn't help people like me who have to be able to work at the other end or people like me who can travel safely with their batteries by and, discharging uh, them, by taping up the contacts, yeah. by making sure they're all safely packed away. Like, it doesn't help to, to it, it doesn't help my productivity at the other end. No, and I think that's important. Like, um, a lot of stuff is safe if you know how to handle it. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's and, just idiots. And the problem that happens is... It's like the drone laws, you yeah. know. We've got all these laws now because people are doing stupid things with their drones when yeah. if they didn't do stupid things. Like, if you didn't go to Bunnings and try to get a sausage that's 20 metres, <laughs> you know, two kilometres away from your house and then come back, maybe we wouldn't have as many, you know, drone laws as we do. Yeah, and look, I think we do need to do it. I see so much drone footage put on social media flying over the tops of dolphins. <laughs> there you go. You, you How know, did you get that? <laughs> that's not, you know, you're really taking a risk putting that out on social media. And, Absolutely. And I think that, that unfortunately laws have to exist because people won't behave. Look, I, I totally agree with you and I get it. But here's the thing that I have a problem with is so I'm in the process of applying for my REOC at the moment, which for people who don't know is the remote operator certificate, yep. which means, which is basically the highest category of, of drone license that you can get, which means that I can 
authorise flights closer to aerodromes than other people I can fly, you know, in, in certain situations that are beyond the standard operating conditions, essentially, with approval from CASA. Yeah. So, but that process so far has taken me about eight weeks. Um, I've been dealing multiple times back and forth with CASA around, you know, documents and all that kind of stuff. And it's costs, it, it'll cost me in the end about $2,000 just to apply for that process. So it, I, I, I get that there has to be rules, but there are people like, you know, operators like me who are trying to do the right thing, but it's just really, really difficult to do the right thing. And guy with bunning sausage can go and do something stupid, but I'm the one that has to do all the paperwork because he did something stupid. Stupid, yeah. You know? So that's that's the issue that I have with it. And and look, being in business, time is money, and then yeah. <laughs> going for all those processes <laughs> yes. is, is 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 it takes you away from shooting and doing stuff that you need to do or promoting yourself. And well, it takes the thing I always think is it takes me away from the ability to grow my business. So if I'm sitting there doing, you know, if my holidays taking four days to put together an, an operations manual for a, for a CASA application. That's four days I could have been could have spent writing LinkedIn posts for the year, you know, that 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 actually promote my business. So it takes me away from the ability to grow my business. Yep. How much of your work involves drones? Um, probably like for, for for smaller, not when I say smaller, but for clients who don't have any need to be anywhere in or near a helicopter, quite a bit. So lots of I do lots of work in the quarrying industry, and they always love to use drones. Um, because they can show how the drone, how the you know how the quarry's laid out, yep. or how they're interacting with the community around them, all that kind of stuff. Um, but a lot of my clients are either at airports or working out of airports, or make helicopters or use helicopters. So you know, maybe less than most other photographers in my sort of industry, I guess. Yeah. Do you think drone is being it's being good for the industry or bad for the industry? Oh, I think it's amazing for the industry. Yeah. yeah, I think it's great. I think being anything that gives you the ability to take a different perspective and offer something different to your clients is amazing. And and also too, like I know it costs two and a half thousand dollars to get a helicopter into the air to shoot one thing. You might want to shoot one development and you're not getting out of that for under two and a half grand as a client. Yeah. But with a drone, if you don't need to be, you know, over 400 feet, you can just send a photographer out there for an hour, get it done, and you've, you're finished. You don't have that huge overhead of the helicopter, which is going to cost you, you know, 1500 bucks an hour. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like I said, that's where technology's got us to at the moment. We're seeing so many advances in technology. And, I mean, drones, I think there's a lot more to come. Um, Absolutely. I think that I think that better quality cameras into smaller quality like into smaller drones so getting essentially a medium format camera into a smaller drone you know it's just going to revolutionize it and i can understand why casa are making all these rules because you don't want idiots flying these things in flight paths and all that stuff i totally get it but i think it will i think the the usefulness of helicopters will will continue to change yeah and i think look, we've all read the media reports of gadwick airport and london bet with drones flying over and i mean obviously drones can be a a huge risk to an aircraft and, and people have got to appreciate that if they're flying a drone they need to really abide by it and there's plenty of apps that can I fly here those type of things that we shall tell people whether they allowed to fly there and people should take the time to absolutely to, to, to read up on that yeah and it's not it's the thing that the thing that I get really upset about being an accident investigator and investigating aviation accidents is like the smallest thing can go wrong in a helicopter and it can be on the ground in less than a second. You know, you can just be dropped and down, particularly if you're flying at low levels. So, yeah. you know, people flying drones around aircraft don't actually appreciate the fact that there are 
two to five people in a helicopter that you could kill if you do something stupid. So mm. you're not just, oh, I got close to this aircraft. You almost killed five people is actually the, the reality of what just happened there. So that's the part, that's the part I get frustrated about. And I think you'd, you'd see it more so because you actually understand that process that a lot of accidents are made up of a whole lot of little things um, that when played together in a sequence all the holes in the cheese have to line up as i say it's uh, yeah it's as part of the you know as part of the icam investigation model that's that's what they teach you you know you you an accident is not one thing that happens it's usually a series of things that happen that lead to a, a catastrophic event so and that's what it is it's just all those holes in the swiss cheese line up to just create this perfect hole for the arrow to fly straight fly through, through and, and then devastation at yeah, the end absolutely yeah so interesting um we touched on talked about what you shoot personally and, and you don't really shoot, um, which a lot of photographers will have their two sides. They'll have their um, professional photographer side and they'll shoot their stuff and then they have their personal stuff and a lot of them do personal projects. Yeah. So you've never felt the need, you get enough well, out of doing your work photography that you don't need that. I Photography feels like work to me, not not hard work or uninteresting work, but it defi- I definitely feel like I'm at work when I have my nikons in my hands you know like i definitely feel like i'm at work so when i'm out of work what i like to do is be creative in other ways so that i have time away from photography so that when i come back to it i'm not burnt out but also it gives me the opportunity to put those other aspects of creativity into my photography so you know i i sew you know i make clothes i've made just about every tripod bag that i own you know like I, i enjoy doing other creative things that are still uh i guess still creative in a different way but that don't involve me having to pick up a camera and and i think the reason that i don't pick up the camera when i'm personally out and about is not actually because i don't enjoy the shooting it's because i don't want to download and process the images really um and so i do i do sometimes still shoot film because i can just take the photo and send it away and then someone magically delivers it back to me which i love but it's it's actually the post-production and the sitting down at the computer which does feel a lot like work and I think that that's where photography has changed. We went from the point of shooting film where basically um, you, you, someone processed the film for you or you, you may process it yourself or whatever, and then you printed it, but there wasn't a lot in between that process. So There's a lot of coffee. You know. But now this kind of seems like, okay, you've got to use Lightroom, you've got to use Photoshop, you've got to use all these things. And it's almost like people starting out in photography kind of get pressured into, well, you got, how are you editing it? What are you going to do? You know, and sometimes, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I guess it's that argument, isn't it? Like people, you know, people like your son, for example, he, he's grown up in a world where it's not... He doesn't know what it's like to not have a phone, you know, So whereas I do. So it's just that they're used to a different way of doing something. So it's not that they're... Maybe they are missing out on something, but maybe they know something that we don't as well, you know. So so maybe they're missing a bit of information at the back end, but maybe they've got all this other information at the front end that us, you know, tech dinosaurs can't see. So I, I don't I don't necessarily subscribe to that argument of, you know, you need to come from a darkroom background or, or you're missing out on anything. Um, but I do think that, for example, today, you know, I'm, I'm shooting a portrait of a person in front of an aircraft. I'm shooting with a cam ranger attached to my camera. It's firing straight to the iPad. The client is standing next to me looking at it going, great, but can I have more of the blade in the, in the, in the shot? And I go, no worries, that's fine. We get the shot and we're done. And so if I was shooting on film, they would have to completely trust 
that what I was doing was exactly what they wanted. And if it wasn't, then you've got to resolve that somehow. Whereas I can resolve it on the spot with that client right there, which I just think is brilliant. I would not, I would not for a, you know all the money in the world want to be a photographer during film days. Yep. Well, that's right because it, and most film photographers, and I've had a few on the on the show, and we've talked about, you know, every time you press that shutter, it's money, and quite often they limit themselves to a number of like a lot of weddings were shot with seventy two exposures for a wedding. <laughs> I know, right? What? <laughs> a lot of wedding photographers take three thousand. I took four photographs at my wedding, and that was it. You know, exactly. So it has changed, but I think that's that's. That's why at the moment it's, you know, it's an exciting time to be involved with photography because of the fact that you can stream the images straight to an iPad, show someone what you're shooting. Um, but also catch my stuff ups. Like, you know, you just go, oh, God, why didn't I think that my ISO, why didn't I notice that my, 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 um, my depth of field was that shallow when I'm trying to take this product shot? What the hell am I doing? You yep. know, like just catching stuff ups that you just, you know, when your brain just switched off for a second, you just go, I'm glad I caught that. Or, or, or just moving an object out of frame that shouldn't be in the frame. Totally, yeah. totally. Because it's easy to do it at time of shot rather than doing it in post. Because the goal should be if you're, I mean, time is money. So you don't really want to be having to surely shots go, oh, I'll fix it in post. I oh, know, I'm not a fix it in post person. Yeah. I just, I don't believe in that as a concept at yeah. all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So do you, what type of, and everyone's always interested in what people do. So we, Obviously, sometimes you have to do some post. Is it what into Lightroom or something, or what do you? Do? Um, I would say ninety nine percent of my stills work is processed through Lightroom. Yep. So it's batch processed, and and most often I'll walk away from a shoot knowing which images I'm going to do post production on because the client will have looked through the iPad and chosen the ones they wanted, or we will have discussed it and figured out which one was the winning image or images. Um, so most often I know I have a pretty good idea of what I'm going to be going into. Um, and it's just batch processing in Lightroom, so it's making adjustments to con contrast and color. Um, it's making adjustments to sort of maybe cropping or just you know sort of tweaking the image slightly in that way, but not very big adjustments. Yeah. I mean, the, the I, I use lighting just about well, I would say ninety nine percent of shoots I use lighting, so yeah. I'm controlling the contrast um, and the sort of dynamic range in most of my images. So you're using a histogram quite a bit. Uh, no, I don't even look at the histogram. I do look at the clipping, highlight clipping. Yep. But I, but on the iPad, it's really obvious what's yep. going on yep. because the it's just really clear. So you can, you kind of get a sense for it, and you also get a sense for how your cameras and your lighting sort of operate together after time. So um, I probably should look at the histogram, but it's yeah, pretty, it's pretty obvious. Well, I, I I have the same thing. I have the highlight clipping turned on so I can actually see it because yeah. I mean I tend to shoot a little bit under. Because mm. you can always you can mm. yeah you can always pull back the sh out Same. the shadows. I'm always amazed what you can pull out of shadows. Yeah, but. absolutely. Especially <laughs> with the, the new D850, it's it's a beautiful camera. It's a bit noisy. It's a bit noisy at, the, at slightly higher ISOs. It doesn't perform as well at um, high ISOs as the D4 did, but it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think because people you know listening to this and if they're starting off in photography, you know if, if you blow the highlights out, there's no coming back. There's no coming back. Yep. White pixels are white pixels. And not going to be anything else. And no, no. Yep, you may as well go home. <laughs> <laughs> you do see, you do see a bit of a trend in photography. There's a lot of stuff on social media where there is very washed out, you know, very high key type images. Yeah, I don't follow a lot of photographers on social media. I've got to be honest with you. I follow quite a few corporate photographers um, because they're, they're the people who are doing things that I'm interested in. They're, they're the people who face the same challenges as me. Yeah. So I'm really interested to see people who are using lighting to light big subjects. Like there's a photographer in the UK who I follow, Greg Harding, and he does a lot of stuff with truck, tr you know, big trucks and truck tires. And he uses 
him and I shoot in a very similar way. We both use the same lighting. We use the same sort of cameras and we're producing results for the same sort of clients. And so I'm always looking at the people who are, who are in my field doing, re, doing my job really well. That's yeah. way more interesting to me than people who are, you know, photographing um, sort of wedding or portrait photography. Yeah. yeah. So, we, and we touched on this before, you're talking about really, you know, a lot of the shots you do, you, you don't have to get creative. That's not part of the brief. But sometimes it will be catching a lot of detail in that image. And um, the, you always do have to get creative. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want you to think that it's not about being creative. Um, but but sometimes it's about being creative with a kind of a really specific set of um, requirements. So the client might want to see these particular parts of this, you know, manufacturing process. But you've got to either light that or or position the person in a way that makes the shot like really stand out like they go wow that's great you know that's that's the my my favorite thing in the world to do as a commercial photographer is to show somebody something that they see every single day and they say i never saw it that way before you know i didn't realize it could look that good or i've i've never i've never understood it in that way before so showing somebody something that they see over and over in a new way that's creative you know that's what that's where the that's why people get me to come back the next time i think it's interesting i've part of a forum that I'm on, I posed a question a couple of weeks ago about is photography art? And, um, you know, lots of conversation backwards and forwards from people saying, yes, it is, no, it's not. And then I had an industrial photographer chime in who gets to take pictures of circuit boards and connectors and that and put a couple of examples up of trying to get creative. Beautiful, yeah. And actually you look at it and go, wow, that's really good. It's just a bunch of connectors. Mm. Which which nobody else would be able to do but that photographer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, it is really easy to look at industrial images and go, oh, I could do that. And like you probably couldn't, you know. Like industrial photography has a really tricky challenge in that you're often dealing with four or five different light sources in the same image. You know, you'll have daylight coming in through an open roller door. You'll have mercury vapor lights at one end of the, you know, factory and you'll have some fluorescent lights at this end of the factory and you've got flash Yep. at your end. All these colour temperatures. So you're all dealing can... with four or five different colour temperatures. So you have to figure out what you're going to use as your main light source, how you're going to cope with all the other light sources, what your flash temperature is going to be, all that kind of stuff. So that's that's what I mean when I say the technical and the creative have to combine. Yeah. So And like I said, those, those challenging environments like that, and they actually take um, skills to actually be able to, to read that environment. Mm. Um, because, like I said, when you have got competing light sources, it's and you, sometimes you don't have much control over what's happening outside. Usually zero control. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've I've heard some commercial photographers would actually prefer to go to um, shoot something and block all the natural light off and just totally artificially light it. Yeah, I'm not I'm not, I'm not one of those photographers because I think that you, particularly in really large spaces. Daylight does all of the heavy lifting for you yep. because in mostly industrial spaces are lit with, you know, overhead sort of um, panels in the roof or really big roller doors. And the, the daylight does do most of the heavy lifting for you. And so if you didn't have that, you'd need like a 1.2K bounced off something or whatever. You know, you'd need an enormous amount of light to make that look natural. But I think the thing that I've learned about industrial photography is back to basics foreground mid-ground background have something in the foreground have your subject in the mid-ground have something happening in the background you know and have a really shallow depth of field light your subject it's just basic stuff you know yep and you did touch on a photographer there from the uk that shoots trucks is there any other photographers that you kind of really um you know you've been inspired by what they've been able to achieve in that space Um, 
yeah, there's quite a few. Um, I mean, at the moment, though, I guess what I'm more inspired by is video producers. So a lot of my work now is is transitioning into video. I'd say I shoot probably 50-50 stills and video now. So coming from a stills background, you kind of, you, you can look at an image really quickly and you can break it down quite quickly as how they've achieved that and, you know, what kind of challenge they might have yeah. faced getting that image. Um, but video is really different because... For me, anyway, because I don't do a whole lot of post-production on my stills image, you've got to be in video, you've got to be creative in the shooting, but you've also got to be creative in the post-production. And there are so many different ways that you can handle that. The way you cut something together has a really big impact on what the final result is. So at the moment, I'm just, you know, diving headfirst into videographers that are, you know, doing really interesting stuff. And and a really good place to start is the Vimeo staff picks. They have really great, you know, Great examples of really, really great good. examples of what people are doing across all sorts of things: animation, you know, um, video production, everything. It's a really great place to start. Yeah, I think there was a, there was an ad done for um, I might, might have been done for Heathrow Airport. I don't know if you saw the one of the the, the bears. Yes. Amazing. Yeah, incredible. Like just people, you go, how are you so creative? God damn it. <laughs> yeah. And I think look for for photographers listening to this, um, video now is becoming a part of a lot of the workload of a, of a working commercial photographer. Video is, you know, for a lot of clients, it's more engaging. Um, they can use it in different ways. We've got so many different social media platforms. And even things like Instagram now, Instagram is becoming more video friendly. Yeah, absolutely. Because yep. they, they realize that, you know, the still pictures are great and a still picture can tell a lot, but video can deliver so much more. And video gets an enormous, uh, you know, it gets much more engagement. Like if you post a video versus a still video, get, you know, 70% more engagement or something like that. You know, some crazy huge number of more people looking and interacting with that content. Yeah. And I think that's because there's so much more information packed in there. And we, we had a photographer on here a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about um, video in its role now. And he was saying how he, you know, he'd, he'd watched um, people's wedding videos online, you know, seven minute package. You didn't even know the people, but... The cinematography and the way it was cut together was just, you know, you just watched it because it was just... You just couldn't take your eyes away. You couldn't take your eyes away because it just pulls you in. And, you know, a good photograph will, will grab somebody and draw them in and hold them there for that period, little period of time. But then it goes, but video does have that power. And video, I find, too, can, like, drag you through something, pull you out and then slam you back into it again, you know. So... Um, you know, I, I watched a video last night that somebody had produced for a client and it was just amazing. Like you just start off, it's really gentle and then they ramp you all the way up to this really big climax and then they drop you down and you're just back to this heart-wrenching moment and then they just bring you back to this nice place at the end. So I think video has this capacity to really take you through a cycle of emotions more so than a, than a photograph. Yeah. I mean, in a photograph, you can have a number of different elements that are all going to speak differently to people. Absolutely. But... Each person is going to read that in a different sequence, mm. which means to, can totally change the meaning of what you're trying to do. But with video, you can lead people, like you said. You've got that ability to take them to places and drop yeah. them back down. Yeah, and 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 that's you know as as we were talking about when you were setting up, you know, you you, you mentioned that you that you love to take s s photos because you can control the light, but sound is always really hard to control. So, video is something where you've got to control light vision sound and movement you know you've got you've got four elements to control there whereas in photography you've you've kind of only got two or three at the yeah. most you know so video is so much more complex in that way because you've got to deal with all sorts of things and also too people will forgive shitty you know sorry people will forgive um terrible vision but they won't forgive terrible sound 
So yes. if your vision looks a little bit bad, but the sound is interesting or it's an interesting enough thing, like Blair Witch Project, for example, people will watch that. But if you're if there's crackly sound or it's hard to hear or it's really noisy or it's scratchy, people are like, well, I'm just going to turn that off. Yeah. You know. Yep. So in video, you've got this thing as a photographer that's not your native profession that you now have to overlay into something else and you just go, ah, uh, brain explode. Yep. So when you're shooting your video, what type of gear are you shooting video on predominantly? Um, I have two two video cameras, so um, uh, I have the Panasonic Eva one, um, which I shoot for just you know quote the run and gun stuff that people yep. will talk about. Um, so general commercial stuff, I'll shoot on that. If if I don't, basically I'll use the Eva if I don't need to use slow um, frame rate. Yep. So that that shoots quite comfortably, fifty frames a second, which is about you know half the speed of regular frame rates. Yep. But I also have the Red, the Epic Dragon, um, and I use that if I'm doing anything that requires very high resolution or if I'm in an aircraft, I just use that because it's so much easier to use than the EVA. So, yeah, anything that needs to look cinematic, I'll use the Red for. Yes, yep. And was that was that kind of hard for you to transition from the still stuff to the video? Did you Was it a, a new learning curve or did it something you talked to fairly quickly? Um, a bit of both. Like I, I think it took me a little while to figure out that as a photographer – you are trying to capture movement in an image. You know, you're trying to freeze a frame and you're often trying to show movement or, or a dynamic situation that's going on to make your photo dynamic. But in video, you have to let the action unfold in front of you and you can definitely introduce camera moves and all that kind of stuff, but you have to be more patient in terms of letting the movement, um, you know, flow past your camera or, or just, you know, it's, it's thinking about movement in a really different way, basically. So it took me a while to get my head around that. Um, and it also took me a while to get my head around the fact that if a client asks you to shoot video and stills at the same job, the answer is no, because you can't do, you can do both, but you can't do both well in the same job. Yep. Um, and yeah, just the challenges of learning a whole new way of post-production, like editing, what? <laughs> yeah. Have, have you been able to kind of get that message fairly easily to the, <clears throat> excuse me, to the clients about they are two different skill sets and two different? Yes, y- yes-ish. I mean, most of the clients who ask me to shoot video, I've been shooting stills for for a really long time and they trust me to give them good advice. So um, mostly it's been a pretty easy sell. Sometimes it's hard for new clients, particularly if it's for like an event or something where they just want video and stills and an event. I just go, well, I'm probably not the... I'm not the photographer slash videographer for you if that's what you want. Um, yeah, I just don't transition very easily between the two in one in one go. <laughs> Where do you see photography heading in the next five years? You've got any predictions that you kind of can see the, the direction it's going, or um, I think in a commercial sense, um, I think people are relying on images more and more and more. I think you just there's more work out there. I honestly believe that we're only just now starting to really come out of the GFC. So we're in 2000, or probably last year, I would say. So 2018, 10 years after it hit, I think people were really just starting to see the impact of the fact that they hadn't done enough um, marketing and promotion in that five years from 2008. And they're starting to see the effect of that now. So they're really ramping it up now. So I I think in the next five years is a pretty good time to be in business if you're going to start a business. Um, in terms of where photography is going, there's two. I feel like there's a there's two kind of opposing forces. There's this force of like we're driven much more by a content world, by social media, all that kind of stuff. But then there's this other argument which says spend less time on your phone, spend less time interacting with your with your social media, and speak more to people one on one. So I think 
those two are equally opposing forces, but I think that's good because, you know, as you say, you know, when I said I don't shoot anything personally, it looked like you almost fell off your chair when I said <laughs> that because but, – but I, but I think that, you know, it's great for people to take photos professionally and personally, but, you know, I love to just experience the moment that I'm in when I'm in it and I use Instagram for work, but I don't use it personally, you know, like I'm not, I'm not necessarily <coughs> posting personal pictures yeah. on there. Because there is a big disconnect when you're you, behind the camera. Mm. So what's going on, you, you are disconnected. Absolutely. Um, and I, I often talk about the camera insulates you from... It does. And, and it, it's that thing too, like I've had so many people ask me to like photograph their wedding or film their wedding or take photos at this event or this family event and I just go... Am I a guest at your wedding or am I working? Because that's what it is. I'm either working or I'm not, you know. And so people think that it's, it's, it's it'd be like, you know, going up to your gynecologist and saying, oh, why are you here for dinner? Can you give me a quick exam? You're like, you know, it's the same thing. And, and people don't understand that because, because photography is so ubiquitous and accessible. They just think it's, you know, it won't take you much time. And you're like, well, probably won't, but I'll be working when I'm doing it. I think that's the um, camera phones have done that. Camera phones have changed a lot of people's perception of photography because they think it's so easy um, and camera phones do produce you know pretty good images yeah. today um, <clears throat> I shoot with both and I tend not to tell people which one I'm shooting with yeah. when I post something um, and people will assume it's taken on a full frame camera and it might just be shot on my iPhone um, but I think the the challenge is to try and for commercial photographers to keep the value in photography, why the client should use. And I think the way to do that is with lighting. I really believe that the way to set your work apart is to get is to understand lighting and to use it. And even if it's just to use one light at a shoot, like every year for my business, what I generally do is set myself a challenge for the year. And so five years ago, it was like every single shoot I do this year is going to involve lighting. Yep. If I can help it, I'm going to take a light to every single shoot because I wasn't before that. Um, and it made a huge difference to the quality of my images. And now I'm so used to it that if I don't have lighting, I'm like, oh, my God, how am I going to make this work without lighting? You know, so my challenge this year was to think about perspective in a different way. So just trying to like either get a, get higher or get lower or go behind or whatever, like just figure out a different way to, to, to create the image. And I, th I think that as a commercial photographer, if you want to set yourself apart and you want to stay relevant, you have to use lighting. Yeah, um, well, it does. It makes or breaks an image because it, it, it can change but it. But it's also the reason why they would hire you instead of hiring, you know, Jenny in accounts who's got a, you know, Canon 550D or whatever. I don't know. But, like, it's the reason why they would use you instead of using somebody else, So you know, who's, who's on their staff. So I think – I don't think that photographers will ever become irrelevant and I think that people who are afraid of, like – People at that end of the market who are like, oh, I'm getting cut out by people who use their own camera, well, then you're not doing a very good job. Like yep. if someone in accounts who, who is a part-time photographer can do a better job than you, then you're a bad photographer. That's yep. what I think. Yep. I mean, professional photographers, you, ha you have to be at a certain standard. Um, you know, if you, I don't know if you've ever done anything with the appers, you've ever put any prints in or anything like that? I or? am not a member of the AOPP. No, yep. no. No. And look, but they, the, the kind of entry-level um print to kind of get anywhere it was about 75 points because they're saying that's what that's the level i should be delivering every every day. single day yeah every absolutely. single day if you're not at that level look I, I look back at some of the absolute crap that i delivered to clients in my first two years of business and i can't believe i'm still in business like some yep. of the stuff i delivered in the beginning was horrendous 
And again, it's because I didn't, I wasn't using lighting and I wasn't understanding perspective and I didn't know about foreground, midground, background, you know, and, and I just, I look back and I just go, oh my God, I can't believe you're still, you still hired me after that absolute bucket of crap. <laughs> um, but, you know. But the clients don't, sometimes the clients don't always see that. I mean, you always, you always critique, you're the hardest critic of your own work normally. Oh, if you saw some of this stuff, you'd be pretty <laughs> critical as well, I think. But I, but I do think that clients grow up with you, yep. you know, so Airbus, for example, I cold called them, they used to be Australian in aerospace I cold called them in 2011 and the very first job that I did for them was a family day was an event where they drag all their staff and all their families in and they get to play around all the helicopters and last year I just did you know a 12-month project with them and you know army aviation to film and photograph the you know ARH Tiger and MRH Taipan which are their two military helicopters that they make and so you know, that was the biggest job that I did last year. And so from 2011, shooting a family day event through to shooting, you know, 10 videos essentially plus stills, plus interviews, which took a whole 12 months to do, the client has grown up with me over that time. And so as my skills have developed, what they expect and what they need has also changed. So I think there is something to be said for holding on to those relationships and really developing the personal relationships so that the client will trust you to keep growing with them. And have you learnt that you've actually understood your client so you kind of can preempt them and say, I think this would be really good for your image or the type of images you want? Have you been able to kind of... I think the commercial photographers who are the most successful are the ones that can understand a client's business and say, I think that if you did this, it would make your life easier. So my job is always to make my client's life easier whether it's through how I deliver the images or how I shoot it or how I give them advice on what they can do. The, the, the aim is always, even if it makes my life more difficult, the aim is to make their life easier. And I think that, you know, growing up now, having been in business for a decade, one of the, the best things that I've learned is to understand the business. Like, don't just understand what they want you to deliver, but understand the business. Because if you understand the business, you'll understand what they're trying to achieve, which means you'll be able to give them really good advice on what they should be doing, not what they want to do. Because what they want to do is not always going to give them the result they want. Yeah. So understanding that those two things are different is, I think, is like a secret source for commercial photography. Look, any business person wants a return on investment. So when you spend money to get a photographer in, you want to create those images, you have a purpose for those images, and you're hoping that those images will either, through that, connect you with new potential clients, bring more business into you, then you can actually put a, um, a value on that, on that, saying, well, that's great, I invested thousands of dollars to get these photos, but it brought us in you know, $200,000 worth of work. Absolutely, or I invested you know, five grand to get these images done, but I can use them in four other different ways that I didn't imagine I was gonna be able to use them in. So just by tweaking something slightly, you've now got a slightly different image, which means you can also use it in this way or in that way. So you know, if I'm taking photos of like, for example, I was at um, uh, TAE, they, they, they service the jet engines for the F-35. So they're shooting portraits of the CEO, we're doing all kinds of other things, manufacturing images, and I said, look, I'm just going to get a few close-up images of some, some of your products here, and she's like, oh, we don't really need them. I'm like, oh, that's okay, I'll just get them while I'm here while we're waiting for this other guy, you know. And I got them, and she got the images back the other day, and she said they're amazing because... I can use them as fillers yep. in my corporate you know, profile, all that kind of stuff. And so it's just about knowing that maybe what they want isn't always exactly what they want. Yep. <laughs> and knowing when to push back on some things, yeah. I remember <clears throat> talking to a um, travel photographer who shot for travel magazines. 
and he would talk about how he would, before he would go and shoot them, he'd ask them what type of layout. So he had an idea of where the images would sit on the page. So he would take things exactly like that to fill a spot because he knows this image is going to be here, this image, and that's going to have a little, just need something in there to lift it. And that's the skill of being, understanding um, the space that you work in. And obviously it makes the client's job even easier because you're kind of I, I helping think, them. I think the real value as well in being, a, in being a good commercial photographer is asking questions that the client doesn't, hasn't thought about. So that question of layout is really important. Like I'll ask that question every single time I'm shooting. Where are these images going? Are they going on a website? Is it going on a banner? Is it going in a document? Is it going to be landscape or portrait? Like how big are you printing them? All that kind of stuff. And often the clients haven't necessarily thought about that. Yeah. So, you know, there, there are questions that as a commercial photographer you begin to remember to ask because you know it's going to cause you pain down the line if you don't know the answer to that. Um, but that's the value. Like by getting them to think about things that they hadn't necessarily thought of before shows them that you're actually really good at your job. So, for example, if I'm going on to – if it's a new client and I've got – it's a safety site, like if I'm going on to a quarry, for example – I'll ask them questions like what kind of, you know, um, safety sort of documentation do I need before I set on step on site? What kind of PPE do I need? Yep. You know, w what are the sort of um, safety controls that are going to be on site? Because I know as a photographer what risks I introduce onto their site, but they don't know what I do or how I do it. They yep. don't know if I'm going to set up a tripod and a forklift's going to run over it or something stupid. So yep. I know how I'm dangerous to their site, but they don't necessarily always know that. So being able to ask questions that make you look like you're really smart is a really good way of making your clients go, oh, that, uh, oh, she knows what she's talking about. I should use her, you know. Well, I think that's a skill like in any any business. You really need to be able to be, you know, come across as professional, and and that comes from experience too. Quite often, as you work with clients too, you get to understand them more as well. So obviously, um, you know the the things to ask them and that type of stuff. So, mm -hmm. um, so. Just run me through, you talked about your video cameras, so you, your still equipment that you shoot with, mm -hmm. you shoot with some Nikon. Do you do yeah. have one body, two bodies, what do you have? I have usually have three going at any one time. So yep. um, I did have the D800 and I wanted to throw that thing in the river. It's the worst camera that Nikon ever made, or second worst camera. Um, I hated it so much. It was just muddy and contrasty, yep. so I just got rid of it. So now um, I have one camera usually that I use for time lapses, and yep. that's my trusty D700, which is yep. a workhorse. It's got, you know, over 300,000 actuations on it, and it won't die. It'll, <laughs> I'll die before that thing will die. So I use that if I need to do a time lapse. Yep. Um, I use the D4 as a, as a backup camera now. It used yep. to be my main body, but it's my backup body now. Um, and the, my main body is the D850. Yep. And it's kind of important having that, having that spread of gear because it does – give you some contingency plans mm. and you do see a lot of photographers start out and they're shooting with one body um, and also and that's fine I started out the D700 was my only body for yep. four years so yep. if something had gone wrong with that camera I was well and truly in trouble yep. so it's I don't think there's anything to be ashamed about but I think that there were a couple of jobs where I thought oh if this goes wrong I'm in terrible trouble so I rented another body yeah yep. and the other thing too I mean you're working you know talk about quarries and things like that um in environments where there's high contamination that you don't really want to be changing lenses. My, 
if you are unfortunate enough as a piece of photography equipment to land in my bag, you are working off some bad karma from a previous life because whenever I take my camera gear to Mark at Anderson's, he just looks at me and says... <laughs> Where have you had this stuff? What the hell? I remember sending him a photo one day as I had my camera bag next to a drag line, which is like basically a 20-storey building and my camera bag is the size of a postage stamp at the bottom of it and there's <laughs> dust everywhere. And I'm like, this is why my camera bags are always really shitty. And he's like, oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah, it's... You know, I, I think that um, I, you definitely don't want to be changing lenses, but you definitely want to be relying on people like Andersons or whoever you get your gear serviced with to just go, right, this is just an expense of being an industrial photographer. And I know that, you know, if you're a wedding photographer or a general commercial photographer, you might get 10 years out of a lens. I'm lucky to get five, you yeah, know, so yeah. that's just the way it goes. Yeah, it's just a normal thing. Yeah. So what what has been kind of been the most standout moment or standout job that you've done in your career so far? Um, the one that's had the most impact on my career, which is not necessarily the, the it's not necessarily my favourite image, but in 2012, I um, was photographing a handover ceremony where um, Airbus were handing over a Tiger, a helicopter, to the Commonwealth Government, and we were in a hangar with full daylight, both hangar doors open. I had one speed light with me and my camera. And I just stopped all the way down and I just took 30 exposures and I just fired the flash all over the camera, all over the aircraft. Yep. And I spent hours and hours photoshopping that together. Yep. And that photo, I can tell you, has led to some of the biggest jobs of my career because people have seen that photo and gone, oh, I really like that photo. She must be able to do this other really expensive job. Yep. So it was just a risk that I took. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. Yep. But that one photo has just followed me throughout my career and... In fact, the, the reason that we were able to do this kind of Airbus Army job over the past 12 months was because I met the guy who was in charge of, you know, the School of Army Aviation at, at the air show two years ago. And he said, oh, I know you. You took that photo. I know that photo because yeah. he's a Tiger pilot. He's like, I know that photo and I trust you and I'm going to give you access to all of my aircraft for 12 months and you can do this project. So yeah. it's not necessarily my favorite image, but it's the one that's had the most impact on my career. It's a real compliment when someone can actually look at an image and actually work out the photographer. Well, yeah. Well, well, the only reason why he was able to is because I have it printed on the back of my business cards and he looked at it and he said, I've seen this image. Did you take this? And I said, yeah. He's like, I love this image. I've got it framed in my office. And I was like, all right, let's do this. Uh, I was like, that's against copyright, mate. (laughs) I'll send you the invoice. I was like, no, let's do this project. I actually said that. I was like, that's against copyright. You owe me a project. He's like, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, So... Where to next? Where do you think your Where do you think your photography will lead you to? Do you? Oh, I have no idea. I didn't even know I'd be here. You know what I mean? Like, a I lot, did... and a lot of people do that. They they start off and they don't have a kind of a roadmap. They jump into it. They start doing it. They get some success in some different areas. If you had told me five years ago, you know, that I would be hanging out of military helicopters for you know the last three months of last year, I would have told you you were crazy. You know, so I'm so fortunate i mean i've worked my absolute tail off to get here but the jobs that people have trusted me with have been incredible and so for me what i would love to be able to do is really leverage off that and do more aviation i think there's a really great opportunity to to really um, get more work in the defense space and do some more work around that i would love to do that Um, and just hone my just be better at what i do like do it better do it faster be more, um, deliver more relevant products to my clients. That's that's my goal this year. Yep. And I think that, look, that's um, the challenge of all photographers. If you can find a niche that you can 
get into that niche and you can do it really, really well, you've set yourself up to working in there as long as you wish to work, basically. And I think also too, like the thing that people don't necessarily see in the background is they go, you know, I've had a couple of people say to me in the last few months, oh, you're really lucky to be able to get that work. Like, how did you, who did you talk to to get that work? I'm like, I built relationships for 11 years trying to get that yep. work, you know? And so now I can walk into a place and I'm, I'm trying to get more work in one particular part of Army at the moment. And I'm probably going to get it because I know the guy that just transferred into there. So it's because I've got a good relationship with that person. So it's like... I would say the most important skill you can have as a commercial photographer is to be able to build and maintain good relationships with, with anyone, whoever you meet. You, do, you just do not know where your next job is coming from, particularly in Brisbane. It's such a small market. You just you cannot annoy anyone. You have to constantly be, you know, constantly be the better person, constantly, yeah. even if it means putting yourself out or just sucking it up or taking it on the chin, just do it because you never know where your next job is coming from. And I think you can't overstate more that the fact that relationships are so important in business. And I had a photographer on here last week and, and a lot of his work's come because he's built some really strong relationships in, in his particular field of photography. Mm. Um, and I think once you get those relationships and if you look after them and yep. nurture them and you deliver, um, it, just, it just grows. And I think that's the part people starting off, they see photographers doing all this work and like you said pictures of you hanging out of a helicopter and all this type of stuff and think oh i want to do that how do i get there yeah it is quite a it is quite a pathway to get there and it's not something you can just do overnight mm. and i didn't necessarily have a specific goal to get to that point you know but i didn't know the kind of clients that i wanted to work with i was always excited by aviation and aerospace so i, I did target those customers early on when i was cold calling in 2010 and 2011 you know i probably made I reckon I probably made 400 cold calls in those two years and I probably had 50 meetings and I probably, I would say my five biggest clients now are all as a result of those cold calls. So it's not like I sat back and waited for people to come to me. I actively chased that work. And I think that's probably one of the things that I always talk to, you know, photographers who are just starting out. I think they think that because they have a website and a social media channel that, that the work is just going to flood in. But 10,000 other people also have a website and a social media yep. channel. And and also too as commercial photographers, like if you're a wedding or portrait photographer, then yeah, people are scrolling Instagram or Pinterest or Facebook for, you know, wedding photographers. But if you're a commercial photographer, the marketing manager of Brisbane Airport is not hanging out on Facebook as the marketing manager of Brisbane Airport. She's hanging out as, you know, Jane Smith, mother of four sons yep. who, you know, keeps bees. So she's talking about beehives and about the crazy stuff her sons did or whatever, but she's not thinking about, oh, here's this commercial photographer, you know. So you have to develop those relationships first, I think. Yeah. So, and with social media, I mean, you're not a prolific poster on social media. Not really. And I think it's funny because some some subjects just don't get the love, do they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, look, I probably could post more. And I would some in some cases I would love to post more, but I just I can't like you the know, nature of some of your shots are actually of, yeah some yeah. of my best work no one will ever see outside yeah. of defence because you just can't. But I mean I probably I'm probably guilty of I'm of that generation where it's not natural to me to think about I should take a behind the scenes photo here. So I'm I'm getting a bit better at it, but yeah. I've never gotten a job off Instagram or Facebook or even LinkedIn. You know yeah. I've never gotten a job that way. It's always been through people searching my website, finding me, or getting a referral, or me approaching them. Yeah, 
I think that's important for people that yeah, you can't you can't just go on social media and expect to build a business. Yeah, it's there's an old tried and trusted way to build business, and it and it's you know it's wearing your shoe leather down. You've yeah. got to get out there and pay them. But it. also, too, the, the companies or the people who are successful on social media generally are the people who are developing relationships on social media. So they're going out and they're commenting on other people's posts or they're following the businesses that they want to work with and they they offer them help or stuff like that. They're, they're still using social media, but they're using it to build relationships. And that's the difference. It's not about here's everything I can do waiting for the floodgates to open to approach me. It's about actively targeting people and approaching them to develop relationships. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jen, it's been really interesting to get a bit of an insight into um, your world because it's a very different world. Uh, <laughs> it is a bit. <laughs> and I think it, it's, it, it is always interesting to talk to another photographer who, who shoots something a little bit different. Mm. And like I've had one experience where I've shot airside yep. and it was exhilarating. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You know, you get is. so close to that action and be able to take shots that you just dream of, that there's no restrictions, you basically can... You can um, and do that, so it is exciting. And I think, look, one of the things that you did kind of touch on too, because you've pursued that because you do have a love for it and you can see that the way you talk, that you are very impassioned and enthusiastic about that, that style of thing. And I think that's a good takeaway for point for people to do, mm. find something that you Absolutely. love doing. But also too, I think, find something that, like I can see how every job I've ever had has fed into my career as a photographer now so I use all of the aspects of my forensic science degree and my accident investigation and, and all and my mediation training I use all of that as my you know as a photographer so also look at the things that you're good at outside of photography and figure out how you can draw that into photography I think that's also really important and it's really interesting you're right like one of the reasons I don't shoot personally is because I get to do some amazing stuff professionally. Like you and that's and that satisfies the soul. You can't beat some of that stuff. Like yeah. you just can't, you don't get any better than that. So what what, what am I going to take photos of outside of work? You know that that's beats it. that. You, you get these massive jets and <laughs> <Yeah>. things. <laughs> I know I'm hanging out the side of a of a you know of a helicopter. Like like nothing beats that. So why would I bother? <laughs> <laughs> Look, thank you for coming thank in you. and having a chat. And it's been I'm sure like people listen to this and. And obviously, so where just where can they find some of your stuff? Oh, after me saying I'm not on social media, let's plug my social media. Um, <laughs> I'm on Inst- Instagram. is probably the best way to just keep track of what I do. Um, yep. It's just Jen.Dana, D-A-I-N-E-R. Yep. Um, and, you know, links to all my website and stuff is there. And, like, I'm happy to answer questions if people have questions as well. Like, if people want to get in touch because they want to know something, I'm always open to helping people you know, figure out how to do things or the best way to approach something or whatever. So don't don't be shy to get in touch with me. I don't buy it. I know I'm a redhead, but I don't buy it. So it's fine. <laughs> Excellent. Look, thank you again. Thanks again. Yep. No worries. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of Photo Mission Exposure. If you liked the episode, please leave a comment. Also, you can follow us. Don't forget to tune into another episode soon. Thank you.